Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Francis Fox Piven to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Francis is a professor of political science and sociology at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, where she has taught since 1982. Francis is an internationally renowned social scientist, scholar and activist, recognized for her commitment to the poor and working people, her contribution to social theory and for her social activism. A veteran of the war on poverty and subsequent welfare rights protests both in New York City and on the national stage, Francis has been instrumental in formulating the theoretical underpinnings of these movements. So thank you very much, Francis, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Glad to talk to you. Well, it's a real privilege to talk to you today, and I'm very much looking forward to getting your uh, perspective on some of the challenges we're facing right now and some of the ways in which uh, popular protests are evolving to deal with the challenges that, were, that have been there for quite some time, but that are now on, uh, seem to be on the agenda and on people's minds. Uh, I, maybe just to, for, by way of background for, for listeners, can you maybe just talk a little bit about your your, your background, your research, and the, the, the vast uh, work that you've done uh, over, I guess, four or five decades now? Well, I have two main interests, I think. One is uh, in poverty in the United States and the social policies that have been inaugurated in the U.S. and elsewhere presumably to alleviate poverty, but maybe not to alleviate poverty. Uh, And my other interest has been in uh, insurgent movements, protest movements, defiant movements. I'm particularly interested in contemporary movements, but to understand contemporary movements, I have also uh, invested a lot of energy and work in studying historical movements particularly in the United States. Yeah, a very uh, important work and very timely opportunity to talk to you today with everything that's going on in, in the United States and, and around the world. Um, I mean, w- w- the primary focus of this podcast series is and sustainability-related issues and global warming and environmental questions. And Clearly, we face many, many environmental problems, but also many other problems as well. I'm just wondering what in particular is on your mind right now? Oh, I have so much on my mind. Uh, but in particular, I think here in the United States, Uh, We have been in the throes of what might be called a kind of legitimation crisis, uh, where with both the change and the rise up of a business democratic party, a business dominated democratic party, and a fascistic Republican party. And uh, for Several for several years at least, but maybe longer, it was hard not to worry 
that the United States, no matter its celebrated uh, electoral institutions, that the United States was nevertheless moving down the road to fascism, uh, particularly with the election of the clown-like uh, president, Donald Trump. But then, and nobody really predicted this. Well, I did predict it actually about six weeks ago, but six weeks is not a very long-term prediction. Uh, came the, there came the almost the explosion of a vast social movement, uh, I think brought to life by a kind of popular revulsion and anger at police brutality against African-American people, but really also carrying within it a host of grievances having to do with the strength of neoliberalism in the United States. That movement is in some ways unlike any movement in American history. For one thing, it is so extensive. It reaches into the small towns and villages of American society. It's not just a coastal movement or a big city movement. Uh, so its extensiveness is impressive. The other thing that is historically virtually unprecedented is that it is an interracial movement. Now, it is true that the civil rights movement of the 1950s, 60s, and early 70s uh, did attract white supporters, but it was never a deeply interracial movement. This movement is. If you look at the films and the photos of the protesters, there are Lots of white people in those protests. Uh, and the relations between the races in the protest actions themselves seem to be very solidaristic, very mutually supportive. So that's another thing that is absolutely unique about this movement and very, very promising, very exciting. Because... This is really the big opening that's been created in American politics to change course in policy terms in ways that have a lot to do with sustainability, but in ways also that have a lot to do with the well-being of, American, of the American people. Absolutely. There's been tremendous momentum and uh, it's, it's continuing. How do you see this evolving? And what are the risks that it peters out? It's, it's, it's strong at the moment. In your experience, you've seen many protest movements grow uh, and, and continue to grow and some grow and die. What, what are some of the risks about a situation like this in terms of the potential for it to fade away? Well, there are all sorts of risks that confront protest movements, but 
the big risk that uh, sympathizers always talk about is co-optation. Uh, but that risk is probably a little bit misstated. Uh, commentators think about uh, the risk, for example, that the movement will be co-opted by electoral politics. And there is some evidence that uh, the, this movement is very interested in a way in electoral politics. Black Lives Matter is interested in electoral politics, politics interested in having an impact in the 2020 election, for example. But I actually don't think that that's a very uh, bad development at all. I think uh, electoral politics can give morale and momentum to a movement. I don't think it necessarily sucks away its energy, its verb, uh, and its capacity for defiance. So, I'm not really worried about that. In fact, I'm counting on the movement to help us surmount the obstacles to electoral victory in 2020. Uh, and they're, you know, they're considerable. They have to do with the problem of turnout, uh, which is large in the United States because there are institutional obstacles to turnout, particularly at the bottom of the society, including difficulties in access and in voter registration. Uh, and I'm also counting on uh, the movement to bring into electoral politics the issues that invigorate people because they reflect the grievances that they experience. They reflect their own daily life, their own fears, and their own aspirations. I think that that can happen. And uh, maybe it is happening. There is, for example, a lot of unexpected, I think, activism in at the bottom of the Democratic Party, at the local level of the Democratic Party. Uh, now, the Democratic Party has been in uh, American politics, sort of the People's Party, beginning in the 1930s. Uh, but over the last 25 years or so, of uh, 35 years really, the party has been uh, sort of uh, smothered by the problems of campaign finance and the money that comes from Wall Street and the professionals, the professional campaigners, the consultants that come with big money and with Wall Street influence. And as a consequence of that, the Democratic Party has changed course. It's become the party of Wall Street. This has created the vacuum in American politics that has made right-wing populism or American fascism possible. So the efforts on the local level, especially on, uh, in the races at the bottom of the ticket, the efforts to 
invigorate the party, to give it a more left-wing populist cast, are very, very welcome. And Bernie Sanders, by the way, a name that will be familiar to all your viewers, uh, Bernie Sanders helped open the way for this development. Yes, yes. Um, what about the, 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 the tactics? Can you talk a little bit from a tactical perspective uh, about how Black Lives Matter and various the people around, around that have uh, responded? And I know in previous interviews, you've talked about the kind of forms of, of I guess, disruptive direct action. And I, I'm just wondering what you think, uh, what, 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 what are the limits and what you've observed about the importance uh, of disruption and, and what is legitimate, I suppose, well, what do you think is legitimate ways to respond? Well, I think uh, in a way that's a question that leads me to think we sort of have to begin at a beginning uh, about the nature of popular power. Uh, when we think about popular power, we often think just about electoral politics, electoral politics, electoral democratic politics is one way that people do exercise influence, but it's also a way in which their influence is inhibited by all of the multiple uh, distortions of democratic electoral influence. In American history, certainly, the real breakthroughs of sort of populist reform have been a reflection of the rise of protest movements, of disruptive protest movements. And when I say disruptive protest movements, I mean movements that interfere with the operation of the major institutions of American life and interfere with those institutions by withholding cooperation. The most popular way in which we think about this kind of collective action is the strike, the mass strike, the industrial strike, the economic strike. People withhold their labor. And that is a disruptive collective action. But there are multiple ways, other ways in which mass cooperation is required for societies to function smoothly and in an orderly way. Uh, we live in big urban uh, conglomerations which require people to obey traffic laws, to walk on the, on, on the pavement, on the sidewalk, to cross at the light. We live in societies that require that women who work, for example, have to depend on nannies who come and tend the children, take care of the children, or on daycare facilities. We send our children to school. There are crossing guards. There are teachers. Everybody has to, in a way, follow the rules of the complex institutions on which our society depends. People have to obey the rules. That means they have to cooperate. And the great moments of popular power 
are the moments when people either withhold their cooperation or threaten to withhold their cooperation. You can think of this as the strike writ large. Children refuse to go to school. Teachers refuse to teach. Daycare uh, workers refuse to go to the daycare centers. Uh, nannies refuse to come to the homes. Uh, the, all those refusals are ways of exercising influence on the multiple groups who are partners in this complex cooperative exercise that is society. And they're also a way of exercising influence on the elites at the top of those institutions. Those are, that's the source of power in a protest movement. And this protest movement has, it's been like the movements in Latin America, really. They have exercised crowd power in urban contexts and very successfully. So this kind of power has to be constantly rediscovered because it's always being obscured, denied, papered over, hidden. We don't, we don't write our history as a history of the expression or the unfolding of popular power through these manifold forms of strike action. Uh, and we don't, we don't teach people about it. And in a way, you know, you can look back at popular culture, the culture especially of insurgent groups, and track their efforts to not only discover this kind of power, but to celebrate it. The, you know, the Wobblies had, had songs about popular power, and that popular power was rooted in the contributions that ordinary people made to the functioning of society. So the Wobblies could sing, it is we who plowed the prairies, built the cities where they reign. But if you insist that it's we who plowed the prairies, built the cities where they reign, then you also are pointing to the fact that if we don't build the cities, if we, if we don't plow the prairies, if we don't mind the children, then things are going to fall apart. And that is the nature of popular power. That's the nature of movement power. Uh, and I think that the complexity of the division of labor in our society actually increases that kind of power. So this is an awakening, and you mentioned the uh, interracial nature. Were you surprised to see the speed and the scale of actions and reactions? And if you, I've, I've seen various surveys, uh, public attitudes have moved very quickly and, and radically uh, towards uh, supporting Black Lives Matter. Quite, quite, quite a powerful thing to, to see. Well, I th- I, of course I was surprised. Who wouldn't be surprised? I mean, this is, it was utterly amazing. Uh, people joining black protesters en masse, so many of them, in so many places. Uh, this was incredible, breathtaking. And uh, 
I mean, it's true that it had something to do or, or to, with the uh, the video of the murder of, of George Lloyd by the policeman. That's true, but that was a that was a kind of trigger, a kind of provocation underlying that tr- trigger, making it so volatile, making people so ready to join black protesters was the experience, I think, of more than three years of a Trump presidency that so violated American norms uh, and that was so cruel and stupid. As It was also the experience of the pandemic and of a government, of a president, that ignored the cautions that were urged upon him by medical authorities and continues to this day to flaunt medical authorities in his handling of the pandemic. And also the spiraling increase in inequality in the United States that was first highlighted by the Occupy protests in 2011. so there, there were many important, broad underlying grievances uh, that, in a sense, made people available for the agitational impact of the police brutality incidents that have been emphasized by Black Lives Matter over the last couple of years. Yeah, very interesting. You mentioned Occupy. Was that a disappointment to you? What, what, what are a couple of lessons, do you think, from, from the Occupy protest movement? A lot of people treat Occupy as though it was a kind of failed movement. I don't. I think it was an enormously successful movement. Uh, when you take into account, in a sense, the limited resources that that movement could command, uh, after all, these were not port workers. These were not automobile workers. They were not miners. They were not school teachers. They were young people who slept on the ground in a city square here and there, and there weren't that many of them. But movements not only disrupt, as happens when longshoremen go on strike, for example, They not only disrupt, they also communicate. They raise issues that are typically papered over by the political parties. And they they have their own sort of repertoire of communication techniques for doing that. They have banners and songs and marches and drums and so forth. Occupy was a communicative movement more than it was anything else. And these young people were really very smart communicators. They were so good at this. Uh, I don't know if you remember the photos, for example, of skyscrapers with Occupy slogans splattered across the blank walls uh, electronically. Uh, we are the 99%. Uh, Occupy captured 
the mass media. They didn't control the mass media, but they captured their attention and they forced their issues onto front pages and onto TV shows. So it was a success. It was, you know, we can't just do one thing and we can't just have one explosion of movement energy. The great civil rights movement in the United States and the labor movement before it, these were movements that spread over many, many years and many different kinds of action. And Occupy, in a sense, is part of the movement that is flowering today. You, you made the connection and, and pointed that people make the connection between the situation, the, the problems that, uh, and, and, and the issues that Black Lives Matter is, is dealing with and the economic situation. And can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yes. I think that the economic abuses to which black and brown people have been subject in the United States from the very beginning of the settlement of the United States. And of course, when you say settlement, we have to take into account also the Native American peoples who lived here before the European colonizers arrived. The economic uh, exploitation, the extraction of labor and wealth from black and brown peoples, as well as the, the oppressive working conditions to which they were subject. These are racial insults. There's no, yes, it's economic abuse, but since we are a racist society and our lot in life and our role in the economy is so much determined by our race or our skin color, yeah, there, there is a kind of merging of economic exploitation or extraction or dispossession and racist uh, insult and abuse. You know, when in uh, the 2008 financial recession, uh, black people, partly as a result of some advances won by the civil rights movement, uh, they had a very limited amount of wealth, very tiny compared to white wealth, uh, but, and that wealth was in their homes, uh, the homes that they had managed to acquire and which they were gradually paying off by investing all their earnings in mortgage payments. In 2008, a massive amount of that little bit of wealth was ripped away by the financial crisis, foreclosures, the private equity companies came and they bought off those, bought up those foreclosed homes, turned them into rental properties. I mean, that, that's racism. It's true that it's economic extraction and you can say, well, we, we're only doing it for the money. You're, but you're able to get that money because of the, racial discrimination to which those people have been subject in American society. 
In a sense, you're saying perhaps that it's endemic to, to the economic system. And I'm just wondering if we could talk a bit about global warming and climate change, because on the face of it, you know, that, that's a very complex question. And uh, we talk about that, it, it, some of the dynamics that make it, you know, so complex, um, slow acting, hard to define, um, very technical in some areas. We're all somehow involved or, or tied into it. But th- th- there are uh, an increasing number of, of uh, thinkers who see the many of the problems tied also to the economics, to, to, to uh, the incessant growth associated with neoliberal economics and, and, and so forth. And I'm just wondering, can you talk a little bit about what potential, I guess in the first instance, for the, the, the kind of uh, protests we're seeing now to, to spread in a more explicit way to, to some of the more predatory forms of, of, of economic relations, capitalism, and, and then uh, maybe also talk a little bit about the potential for protest for to deal with and, and get some response to the environmental global warming issues. Wow. Okay. I'll try to talk a little bit about that. But um, our sort of overriding dilemma, uh, the global warming threat that we confront is created by fossil fuels. Uh, the fossil fuel companies have been as powerful as they are because of the their role in American politics. They uh, whole, whole regions of the country, not only do they drop large amounts of money in the coffers of every politician, uh, but whole regions of the country are in a way dependent on fossil fuels. And people watch as their farms and their dwellings on the bayous of Louisiana are corrupted by the contamination of oil, and they go along with it. Well, they have to go along with it in a way. They don't, they don't have any options, any alternatives. We don't have a political party or a political movement that is creating alternatives uh, to for the people of Louisiana uh, or even the people of uh, Harlem, alternatives to the use of fossil fuel, to reliance on fossil fuels. Uh, so, And we have to create those alternatives. This is, this puts the movement, the environmental movement, the Green New Deal, it pits it against some of the most powerful interests in American politics and in world politics. Uh, We're not going to beat back those interests except through the galvanizing effect of, and the disruptive effects of mass movements. Uh, We can't do it just by going out to vote or by forming a small interest group, uh, nonprofits or whatever. So will we be able to do this? I don't know. I really don't know. I'm, sh- I'm sure you followed Extinction Rebellion's evolution. Do you think people have been bold enough and realized the power that they have? 
Now, and I know you've spoken about the potential for more than that, uh, not in the sense of interpersonal violence, but with respect to property. Based on what you've learned from previous social movements, what do you think is necessary to create change? I think what's necessary is disruption. Uh, the kinds of mass collective refusal that shut down institutions. Uh, but I also think that to use that kind of disruptive power, the ability to withdraw cooperation, people often have to threaten or enact violence. Now, this is very upsetting to a lot of people I know who are doctrinally nonviolent. Uh, I, and I think there's a reason for that. They, it's tr what most people who are nonviolent say is true, that if you're violent, you lose public support. And you need public support to have the protective influence that comes from a kind of foothold in electoral politics. So there's definitely a cost to violence, but you know you have to weigh it in each situation. And also I think that that process of assessing the strategic use of violence and nonviolence is very much confused by the equation of all kinds of violence, even the breaking of a window, are kind of treated as the same thing. A, cracking a window is not the same as killing somebody. The police in the United States kill a lot of people. Demonstrators sometimes crack a window. That's These are not morally equivalent, and the American public that we're kind of playing to when we talk about nonviolence, the American public would not think that they were the same thing. So I think we have to much more uh, uh, strategic and shaded assessment of violence and nonviolence. Well, well, the moral question is, is certainly important. Uh, tactically, um, is there not a risk of escalation? And you've seen certainly with Trump in America and in, in other, other countries where some governments are only looking for an excuse. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm not advocating going out screaming and busting everything up. I think we have to be very strategic. Uh, the, in, in our use of violence and nonviolence. By the way, nonviolent protesters are also attacked violently, especially by the American police force, which has to be regarded, I think, as at least partly a kind of the equivalent of the Nazi groups that Hitler mobilized in Germany in the early 1930s. These cops are dangerous. And uh, the fact that the Black Lives Matter movement is trying to curb them is really a promising development. But to get back to the question of violence, we have to be very cautious in using violence. But we do have to recognize that it was the strategic exercise of violence in the civil rights movement, for example, by groups like the Deacons for Defense that permitted a 
black movement or a black and sometimes white movement against Southern apartheid to survive in the racist and violent South. This was a part of the country in which lynchings was an essential pedestal of Southern culture, political culture. And we have to recognize also that the labor movement was able to, to, to enact mass strikes in part because the collective threat power, uh, the muscle men of labor, intimidated the strikes and sc the scabs who were trying to replace the scabs and the cops, the company cops that were trying to replace them when they did walkout strikes. So, you know, it's much more complicated than violence and nonviolence. Nonviolence is a very attractive credo. Our nonviolence will beget violence just, just almost as surely as our violence begets violence if our nonviolence is effective. You talked about uh, people needing to rediscover somehow the potential for protest, the potential for, for social change through protest. What are some, would you say, neglected lessons that, that, that you, you can see from, from your research over the many decades, things that, that you'd like to say to people that they can get, get some insight and, and lessons from the, from the past? Well, it's the lesson of all of our lives. It's the complex tapestry of social relations, cooperative social relations, in which virtually, virtually everyone plays a necessary role, sometimes only by being acquiescent. The lesson is that for society to function, our acquiescence is necessary. Our acquiescence and our obedience is necessary. School children have power. They can walk out of their classes. Women have power. I mean, there's a lesson of Lysistrata, for example. I mean, this is a, it's a classical lesson. Everyone, everyone who is in the society has to cooperate for things to function smoothly. And so we have to, in each social situation, we have to carefully analyze both our contributions to what is the normal functioning of the institution, our opportunities for interrupting or withdrawing our cooperation, and our ability to defend that withdrawal in the face of sanctions, including wage withholding, including fines, including threatened jail terms, and including police batons. Do you think that this is a moment of great potential for social change? Yes, I do. Listen, if we don't get social change, we're in, we don't have a future. We need, that's, our, our entire future is at stake, not just of the U.S., but of people on this planet. Absolutely. What was some guidance 
for people who, who care and want to help change the deal with the environmental problems and, and, and the climate crisis. We, you, I think you, you, you mentioned somewhere that um, in your writing that for social movement to emerge, people needed a belief the system was unjust and also that they could do something about it. Um, I was wondering with respect to climate change, because it's it's a complex problem, I think they call a wicked problem. It's It's got hard to understand, it's, it's technical. Um, and I'm just wondering, there are inherent challenges. It's difficult to point to uh, clearly uh, somebody who's, who's, who's creating the problem in a sense, we, at least it's presented that we're all part of the problem and all our individual consumption and so forth. Of course, there are power relations. And I just wonder what guidance would you offer on how we frame or think about the complex and challenging set of issues we face related to the environment? I think that uh, a mass movement that focuses on sustainability and climate change confronts uh, somewhat different problems than the problems, say, of the Black Lives Matter movement that's unfolding in the United States today. And that is that I think a mass movement around climate change for sustainability has to cope somehow with certain cultural tropes that are very, very important in American culture and I think in Western culture generally. One of those cultural tropes has to do with, well, with stuff, with having more, with, uh, with consumerism. Uh, the, you know, remember the accounts of the Trobian Islanders the cargo cultists who uh, believe, were led to believe, that if they uh, destroyed their crops, the ships would come laden with stuff, and they would get the stuff, and they burned their crops and they starved. Well, we're sort of in the same position. Uh, We either get... Forget about the stuff, the promise of the cargo. Or we may indeed be, not have a future at all. Uh, So now this is very deep in our cultures, this love of stuff. It's not just something uh, into which we have been suckered by consumer capitalism, although that's true. But it goes deep, this love of stuff. And all sorts of peoples who are not part of capitalism can be suckered into conformity by the promise of stuff. So that's one cultural trope that we have to overcome. Another, and I think that people will bridle at, may bridle at this, I think we have to, overcome our Protestant commitment to work, wage work. You know, it's really not very important that everybody go to work for 40 hours a week. It's very important that we stop growing, that we stop burning fossil fuels. It's very important that we stop producing so much. 
uh, accepting the essentials that a lot of people on this globe still don't have. Uh, so wouldn't it be okay if everybody got a basic income and didn't work so long, so many hours? It would be okay, but and it would be good for the climate. So that's another kind of trope that we have to overcome. But in general, I think that a fulsome movement to preserve the planet and avert climate change requires a lot of cultural scrutiny and cultural reworking. And it's time we started to do that. Uh, very interesting. Uh, final question. Um, we talked a little bit about this. You talked about, uh, I guess, how protest spreads and I guess uh, a recurring critique of, of, of the left in recent years has been the fragmentation into various different uh, political groups or focus social groups and so forth. What have you learned about uh, how protest uh, moves and spreads from one uh, site and focus to, to a broader intention? Well, I think it does spread. It's uh, the, the word that's often used is that protest is contagious, but it's not because it's a disease. It's because protest by one group in one place, in one setting, suggests to people in a similar setting that they too could make demands, that they too could try to mobilize to change their circumstances. So protest is contagious with quotes around that word because it what, what one group of people is able to do can be a lesson for other people as well. And we see that. Uh, the great movements of uh, my, my life have all been contagious in the sense that what happens in one town is going to be copied, but also changed in another town that sees that what those people did has some bearing on what we can do as well. Uh, so, but for this process to unfold in a kind of organic way, uh, it's very good if, the protest is not run by a bureaucratic organization. Uh, when protests are successful, what organizers often try to do is to get a budget, to recruit members, to have a dues system, elect officers, develop a constitution. They they try to rigidify uh, the movement. And they want to do that usually because they think that way they will uh, have a longer life, that they will last indeed forever. They don't last forever. They never last forever. But, and, and they may, as, in fact, as a result of bureaucratization, uh, lose the momentum which gave them access to resources in the first place. So I think that the contemporary movements in Europe and the United States, and maybe in Latin America as well, uh, are much more flexible in their ideas about the, the sort of the kind of formation that we have to create 
and nourish. They're much more open to the idea, for example, of, of allowing multiple organizational forms to coexist and to cooperate. And that's a good thing because bureaucratization has been bad for social movements and we need social movements. Thank you. Thank you very much, Francis, for your time today and sharing with us the fruits of your work and your ongoing research and fights for protesting for, for, for things that matter and the invaluable work you do. And I wish you the best ongoing. Thank you for calling. Nice to talk. If you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda, we think you'll enjoy Jason Hickel's powerful new book, Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World, which shows how we need to transform the dogmas of capitalism to forge a new system that is fit for the 21st century. Available online and at all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 